Greyhound to trap one. Greyhound to trap one. How do you read me? Over. You're listening to Trap One. I'm Mark McManus, and today I'm delighted to welcome Denise Sutton and Pete Lambert back to the podcast. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi there, Mark. Hi, Pete. Long time Great to see you both. Yeah, yes. Our paths have crossed in Oslo a long time ago. Mm. But that's another story. Yes. <laughs> uh, and we're all going to the Walk Convention in September, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll all be able to um, say hello in person at that point. Definitely, yes. Looking forward to yeah. that a great deal. Yeah. Got yes. my flight and my hotel and my tickets booked and everything, so. Blimey, you're a hell you're much more organised than me. I should be thinking about I've not got quite as much organising to do. No, well, I've just thought if I commit to everything, then, you know, definitely, definitely go. I've even booked my leave, so. Excellent. That's true. I think you were saying, Denise, uh, the last time you saw Peter Davison at a convention, he was still the doctor. Um, well, yes, and it wasn't even at a convention. I was ah. 13 years old. He just his first season had been shown, and it was at a shopping centre in Reading. Ah. He was signing copies of um, the Visitation, which I think was the only novelisation out at the time, and Peter Davison's Book of Monsters or Alien Planets or something. I think. Yeah, I've got, I've got that the... actually. Yeah, I've got the Book of Alien Planets. Yeah. He had a nice little sideline going there, didn't he? He had his face on all the covers. He was getting a... Um, I, don't, I don't think he actually set all those crosswords, you know? Yeah, his agent was knew how to work the book market. Colin Baker's agent didn't do so well, did he? No, he's not on any of the covers, was he? Yeah, I think he held, put out, held out for more money and didn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so today we're going to discuss the 1965 William Hartnell story Galaxy 4 to mark its release on vinyl for record store day. Uh, do either of you guys collect vinyl? I don't know. I, I really do not have the room for it. Sorry, Most of my CDs are in the cellar these days. So <laughs> definitely no room for vinyl. I, I have just dipped my toe in the water of vinyl. So I've got a few bits and pieces, Some of my fa- a few of my favourite albums. Um, a couple of Kate Bush ones and, uh, and a couple of actually a couple of Norwegian ones um, uh, from some singer songwriters that I'm fans of, uh, but um, but nothing. I haven't got any any Doctor Who vinyl apart from my good old Doctor Who the Music 1983 LP. Oh, uh, which, yeah, <laughs> I had that. It's, it's lovely old thing, and it's got a really lovely painting of the five of them on the cover. Cool. Yeah, I'm only just starting as well. I got um, a record player for Christmas, and I had some records from when I was a kid, but like the, the Star Wars soundtrack and stuff like that. Um, and I've bought a couple of the big Finnish ones that have come out, uh, like the Sainsbury's Tom Baker ones. Uh, and it, so, is that, it is that thing of having a, a tactile thing to hold, and then you put it on, and there's no temptation to skip or to pause it because it's running. Yeah. You just feel a bit more, um, a bit, a bit, a bit more like it's the appropriate thing is to actually just sit down and listen to it all the way through. That's it. And it seems like the guy, I can't remember his name, the guy that's taken over HMV, um, he sort of um, turned around an, an ailing um, music store chain in, in Canada the same way, kind of really focusing on vinyl, because I guess that's the, like you say, it's the uh, physical media, isn't it? It's not, you can't download it and things like that. It's something people want to collect and buy. So uh, it could well be that HMV here goes the same way. I think they're a bit like those horse brass. I think vinyl's going to become like, you know, um, stay with me here. You know, that you, that you get <laughs> horse brasses in like country cottages, which actually used to be, actually used to be useful things to have. But then they just became a thing that people just liked having because they're kind of cozy and nice. And I guess that's what's going to happen to physical media. 
Yeah, I suppose so. But as the threat of um, Armageddon and the end of life as we know it lurches onwards, people are going to need to have physical copies of things that they can play if they're living in a house with solar power once yes. all of the internet goes away and we can't have it anymore. Post-apocalyptic mm. Galaxy 4. Yeah. That's right, so, yes. Yeah, we I need this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate backup. Yeah. Mm. I say, keep, keep it light. We're... <laughs> well we're we're on topic it is it is about the um um the the death of a planet yeah true that's true yeah the episode name now what's the last episode called that's it the exploding Exploding planet planet. the planet's going to literally explode so yeah um who knows that's it so we've got probably hopefully got a little while yet anyway (laughs) yes uh, so what were your sort of thoughts and memories of this story um, before revisiting it this time? Did you have any particular sort of strong feelings, uh, Denise? Um, well, for me, it was a story that I'd read about in, I think, the Doctor Who episode guide back in the early 80s. And um, there was a novelisation, wasn't there? Mm-hmm. Which I'm pretty sure yeah. I had unread at some point. But it oh. was one of I... those stories that always seemed to have... Um, the concept was heavier than the plot, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the same. I, I knew it was that. I knew it existed, but I knew it didn't exist. But I knew it had happened. And yet there was that flurry of um, Hartnell books they did right at the end of the Target range when they'd run out of everything else. And I did buy it, but I'd never got around to reading it at the time. So I think when this came out on audio CD with the Peter Purvis narration, that was the first time I, uh, I actually encountered it in the early two thousands. What about you, Mark? Yeah, I'd um, read the uh, the Target book um, when I was younger. I was just checking, actually. It came out in 1986, uh, so that, that was before I, I sort of got into Doctor Who. So I had read it when after Doctor Who finished, but before it came on UK Gold when I was just trying to get my hands on as many Target books as I could and, and, and read them. Uh, but I also mm. thought this is one of the ones that came out um, as a script book from Titan Books. I think there was only about maybe eight or nine that came out uh, in the 90s, and I, I bought them all. Uh, so I've read the script of it as well at that point, uh, and then, like you say, the CD when that came out too. So, um, but I hadn't I hadn't revisited it for a long time. And it's quite an oddity, isn't it? Being one of those stories that's it, it's missing, but, but then it's also it's not one with the Daleks or the Cybermen in it, and so it's n- not quite so uh, held, held in such esteem or by collectors and things. So it's one that sort of get, falls between the cracks, um, particularly being having the Dalek master plan just around the corner. Yeah. I think one of the things um, that I kind of remembered, and it's probably like the received fan wisdom, is that it's kind of an allegory for, um, you know, don't judge by appearances because the uh, the rills are hideous, but they're good, and the dravins are attractive, but evil. But um, I don't think that's made that much of in the story, is it? Because Marga and uh, the, the dravins are kind of, um, there's not much subterfuge. They're, they're pretty evil right from the start. That's true, I suppose, because we can't actually see it, though. We don't see these very beautiful, blonde, fembot-type people um, being evil. It's just the voices, and um, certainly Marga has a fantastic pantomime villain voice, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. And and it's it's uh, it's one of the things. I guess the impression of it has really changed. I was I was looking through uh, one of the one of my um, guidebooks on it, um, the About Time series, mm-hmm. uh, and and that was and I realised while reading that that this had been written only a few years ago when no episodes of it existed because episode three was only fairly recently returned. So at that point, 
nobody really knew how the, how they moved. There's, there's the one clip from episode one that existed, but um, but it was completely uh, behind a veil apart from that until not that long ago. 2011, yeah, they found uh, found episode yeah. three airlock. Yeah, it's uh... it was the last one, I think, then wasn't it before the big find? Big yeah, find. yeah, that's it. We, yeah, kind of lucky then, weren't we? We had the um, those uh, we had that and the the, the missing episode of um, the underwater menace. At the same, that kept, that was returned at the same time, wasn't it? And then right. the, and then the big haul of the the nine episodes in the anniversary. Mm. Happy days. Yeah. yeah, not quite an omni rumor, but a, a bit of an a, a mini omni rumor. Yeah, we do we do some more, aren't we? Definitely, definitely. So, uh, but yes, I mean the the idea of the story with um, it does go against the Doctor Who grain because since the days of uh, the Daleks and the Thals, it's been like the beautiful, perfect humanoids have tended to be the good guys, and so this bucks the trend, and I think. Uh, how, if you were able to see the whole thing back at the time it would have made you think a little bit mm. yeah I guess we'd, we'd got used to even by that point just we've got used to Doctor Who being someone who turns up and saves nice people from horrible monsters and that's pretty much ingrained in it so the fact that it was different this time around yeah didn't need to be there didn't need to be subtle about it it was quite a big change anyway mm. And it's two episodes until we even meet the reels, isn't it? And it's a big cliffhanger at the end of episode two that uh, upon seeing one, Vicky screams her head off. So they are built up like that as uh, as monstrous, I suppose, and everything that the drivings have said. But then in episode three, when they start speaking, it turns out they're terribly posh. Yeah. But that's <laughs> pretty much the what denotes uh, the good versus evil. Uh, if yeah. you were softly spoken and posh, like you could possibly be a Radio 3 or home service yeah. uh, <laughs> continuity announcer, then you're obviously you can, well, probably a good sort, really. <laughs> I've only got the fuzziest idea of what they look like, but I bet they're wearing cardigans. <laughs> <laughs> In their own way. <laughs> mm. The nice little bits of dialogue they've got, like when uh, when they said, we're not deaf, you know. <laughs> and oh, yes. slip into colloquial English like that, it's great. Uh, uh, so I quite like the bit when, uh, to take you back to the start when Vicky giving Stephen a haircut. Um, mm-hmm. That's the sort of thing you, you only get in the uh, the early stories, and then the the sort of the eighties Peter Davison where they they spend a bit longer in the TARDIS um, domesticity. Yeah, yeah, and, and, it's, and it's an it's a start to a new a new season, isn't it? Uh, literally, there's been a summer there's been a summer break, and mm-hmm. uh, and and I guess people need reminding because. Is this only Stephen and Vicky's second full story together? It is, isn't it? Because he turns up at the end of the chase, then they have the time meddler. Yeah, and, and, then, and, then one, yeah. and now we're back again. So I imagine quite a few people will be turning in, sort of having forgotten that Ian and Barbara weren't in it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice a little bit of them back up, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think she takes much off his hair, though, because uh, the, the episode that we can watch, episode three, when he's all kind of dishevelled, uh, he's got like a kind of a huge mop, hasn't he? <laughs> It's, it's very, uh, yeah, it's, it's very 60s. Yeah. Made me think it must be a good supply of hair product aboard the TARDIS for him to keep it in check the rest of the time. <laughs> there must be as well as the food. We hear so much about the food machine, but what about all the other domestic essentials that they must, they must yeah. be getting from somewhere? Well, yeah. yes. I mean, William Hartnell uses product. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And def- definitely it's still there by the time David Tennant comes aboard as well. Oh, yes. Very much. I doubt the night I'll have much. Uh, call for that yeah 
short back and sides. <laughs> <laughs> so this is also, it's Verity Lambert's last full story, isn't it? Yes. And people, I think that she gets credited with being the person who suggested making the drive-ins women. Yeah. Uh, the, which is interesting. It could quite easily, it was, wasn't written that way. It was a, and it's interesting that the producer was the one who came along and said that, not just the director or, or whatever. Um, it definitely gave it a bit more, because otherwise it, it, that, that is its selling point, isn't it? Uh, apart, we haven't said the C word yet. I've just realised, how can we talk about this without talking about the jump? <laughs> because this was supposed to launch Doctor Who's brand new range of uh, long-term enemies, I think. Uh, yeah, and quite toys and costumes. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the the sound design for the Chumblies, is, especially as what a story can only largely enjoy on audio now the sound design is brilliant for them isn't it the uh, the, the range of um, kind of beeps and burbles and stuff that they come out with it kind of really reminded me of like a proto r2d2 yes yeah they are really really mm-hmm. sweet and uh, sort of like the idea that they sort of pop up and go down and uh, have a sort oh, of yeah. beetle like carapace mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and and, uh, and Vicky's immediate affinity for them, and Vicky is, is so little girlish in this story, isn't she? She's she's really acting as a sort of like a ten year old, not even a teenager, and and full of innocent sort of mischievousness. And, but but she just really immediately likes them because they're so cute. Mm. In a way, no other companion would have quite carried that off with quite the same uh, you know, childishness. Childish is the wrong word, but you know you know what I mean. Yeah. She just wants to get down and play with them basically, is what she really wants to do, I think. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact yes. that they have guns and could very easily be evil, there's no reason why they aren't. Do, yeah. do you mean the rod-like appendage that comes out from underneath its dome? <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the rod-like appendage, uh, which uh, is, is a, they say looks like a gun at some point, I'm sure. Mm. Um, yes. It's never explained why they tried to blow the TARDIS up, is it? I was thinking about this on the, on the realist, and they... They don't sort of uh, ask the rills when once the Doctor and Vicky go and meet the rills. They don't say, "Why did you try and blow up our ship?" And it's never referred to again. And that's a no, I mean, there's a, it's a, it's a. I mean, for for four episodes of story, there's not much that really happens, is there? There's not. They they, they meet the people. They get captured. They go. Doctor goes back to the TARDIS. Then Doctor goes back to the Dravens again, and then. They get away and make the reels, and and you know it could it could easily be a two-parter. Mm. Yeah, and Stephen spends a whole of one episode pretending to be asleep. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> not even really asleep, just pretending to be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but, but I um I think that there's that really good scene. My, my favourite scene in the whole thing. Uh, sorry if I'm jumping all over the place, but my favourite scene in the whole thing is I think it might be when he's pretending to be asleep. And um and Marga turns and it's in this episode three, so we can see it, and she just gives straight to camera her speech about how wonderful it's gonna be that she although she won't be able to see the planet being destroyed, she'll be able to imagine them all being blasted to death. And she says it straight into the camera. Yeah. And um that's really creepy, I thought. And um the actress Stephanie Bidmead mm. uh, has been in a few other um bits and pieces. Sadly she didn't she didn't uh, it wasn't around all that long. She, she she passed away only about ten years after it went out. Uh, but she uh, she was in um, uh, I know she was in a Crown Court and I know she was in um, oh, various things from from around that that period. She was she had nice little character actress roles going on. But I think this was her moment to shine uh, to get to be the main villain in a Doctor Who story. 
Yeah, definitely. At a time when you wouldn't get that many female villains. Um, if only I was listening to um, something on a totally unrelated to Doctor Who podcast about movies, and even as recently as Iron Man 3 coming out, they the writers wanted to make the villain of that a woman, uh, and the studio said no, um, which is only, I mean, that's why in the last 10 years or so, not even that, probably five years, Iron Man 3. Um, so it's cool that Doctor yeah. Who was doing that um, way before that, and you didn't get a female Bond villain even till the world is not enough, I think, in 1999. So, yeah, I think it's great that wow. uh, Doctor Who was doing that in 1965. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's just it's a shame. Just I think, I guess, it's just down to timing that we didn't get her during Barbara's reign as um, as, as companion. Because uh, that would have been... That, that would, yes. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that have been fantastic? I think they say that most of what Barbara would have done was just given straight to Stephen. Yes. Um, I think uh, at that scene in particular, but but then when it was originally written, um, Margot was a man, not called Margot. So actually, yeah. there was never a point where it was going to be two women. It was just it, it got switched the other way around. But yeah. maybe that's in a way why it doesn't descend into cliche too much. Mm. There is there isn't really apart from the, the opening conversation about oh, what are women, and, and that's very funny, and the way Heinel plays that is brilliant. Uh, but um, but then. Other than that, they don't bang on about their femaleness being any in any way a bad thing, or that, oh, that's why they're evil. Um, it's their it's their lack of um, lack of independent thought that's seen as their. Mm. Um, Although they do kill most of the men on their planet. Apart from yes, apart from as many as they need. these things happen. That's yeah. a bad system. Oh. It's yeah. going to leave. Okay. It's going to cause um, conflict. Mm. Supply and oh, demand. Men are lovely. I like having men around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite an interestingly drawn society, though, that they have these um, sort of artificially created people for specific jobs. Um, and, and it's, yeah, entirely a, a female run society. It's kind of a pity it's never been revisited. Did they get a mention? In one of the Matt Smith episodes, or did I dream it? When uh, um, the uh, the one where they're all there's mass ships approaching Stonehenge. No, I think I'm imagining that. Aren't no, no, they did. Yeah, yeah. when um, I think oh, River, River Song's telling about all the aliens that are um, that are congregating there, and it's the Zygons. I'm sure the Dravins are, are mentioned there as well. It's good to know that they're still rattling about. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> in, in their rather dilapidated spaceship that Stephen is really unimpressed by, isn't he? Yeah. He just, uh, <laughs> he really looks down his nose at it. <laughs> it seems quite nice. I imagine it's entirely made out of uh, um, vinyl and Draylon, basically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah almost certainly. Yeah. I, um, I do think in terms of uh, the, the thing about Stephen getting Barbara's lines for this one, I think the scene where Stephen's trying to convince one of the Dravins to, uh, to to steal Marga's gun and go out with it. Um, you could totally hear Barbara saying that, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah but throughout it, you can kind of hear it, but I thought particularly that was kind of Barbara's uh, kind of modus operandi a bit. Really yeah. Empowering the downtrodden, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and being very strategic about it as well. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting, actually. Uh, I was thinking because we uh, did the um, the uh, Macro Terror podcast last week, 
um, and, and the kind of similarities where you've got where you've got here, you've got Margo and, and you've got uh, Medoc in the other one, and they're both kind of uh, telling the the other characters about these monsters. Um, and uh, you know, Medoc's going, "Have fun while you can before they crawl all over you." And Margo's kind of using the same kind of language, saying, "You want to be captured by those creeping, revolting green monsters? You want their slimy claws to, to crawl about your neck?" But it's the total opposite because uh, kind of Margo's making it all up, um, whereas uh, Medoc was right. Uh, so yeah, it's yeah, kind of an interesting pairing of stories. Yeah, I watched um, I watched the Macro Terror Terror a couple of days ago. I came back from the UK with a big stash of DVDs and Blu-rays, so um, settled down and watched that. It was really good. Did you watch in colour or black and white? I watched it in colour. I, I watched the first two in black and white, and then switched to colour for the second two. So it was like <laughs> extra feature. Yeah. I mean, the the colour palette that they used it, it wasn't too brash and technicolory, so it was. Uh, quite easy on the eyes and um you know not too far removed from monochrome really mm. yeah yeah and, the, and yeah they've both got that this same thing of um don't let your fear control you you know fear itself is, is a thing that will be used to control you is a, a message that goes through them both really isn't it except in my, <laughs> as you know and also in both of them the doctor decides who the baddies are and commits genocide against them which is yeah. um, it's in both <laughs> stories, doesn't it? Uh, I think, uh, there's a danger that Hartnell would have just killed the real, sorry, Trout, I mean, would have, would have just uh, immediately poisoned the reels as soon as he could. Yeah. <laughs> a bit of a <laughs> battle fiends. Yeah, I thought that was interesting when, uh, when the Doctor and Stephen get back from the TARDIS, back to the driving ship. Um, and, and initially they don't tell the, drive, uh, the drive-ins that it's only two dawns until the plant's destruction. Um, kind of what his motives are there because it, while he's in the same conversation he's saying well I, I, I never kill anybody and neither, neither do my friends right? which is obviously a lie um, but <laughs> by saying that in trying to uh, lie to them and convince them it's 14 dawn instead of 2 he's obviously thinking well we'll get out of here um, and then they'll just be left uh, to be destroyed and the other thing I quite like about that scene is the way Marga realises they're lying because she notices a look between them which mm. is really subtle and nice because in modern TV you get that kind of a lot of that kind of soap opera acting where somebody's obviously lying and they go uh, um, it was the wrong number and, and nobody ever picks up on the kind of that kind of really hesitant stumbling delivery um, so this felt yeah. a bit more kind of sophisticated than a lot of uh, a lot of TV you get now. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I thought it was a bit ironic. The doctor saying, "Me and my friends never kill anything after." Um, Barbara killed Vicky's pet back in the rescue. Yeah, the sun beast murder. Yeah. It's lucky that Vicky wasn't there to hear that. Yeah, you, don't, you do not want to give Barbara Wright a, a fright when she's carrying a flare gun. Otherwise, <laughs> you're going to be in big trouble. Yeah. That's a nice through line with Vicky's character, isn't actually, when she had the uh, Sandy the sun beast as a pet and then she's calling the Chumblies, or she names the Chumblies and this and kind of sees them. It's... Uh, like you say, she's got that sort of childlike innocence. Um, with, with she has, but I think also she, you know, that's what the doctor really loves about her because he needed a replacement for Susan because he missed Susan so much. And there's this wonderful girl and some of the scenes, they have this real warmth between them. It's beautiful. Like um, it's when they're on their way to the real ship and they stop and... The doctor says, you must note, observe, collate, conclude. Mm. 
Mm. And Vicky does all of these things, and then she chucks a rock at the Kimberly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. kind of. I have to think that the she, she's a really good example of the um, the sort of pantomime principal boy kind of character that could could be played with something in Panto. It'd be a girl playing Dick Whittington, mm. or um, that, that kind of character who who is that who's there for everyone. You know, they, they might be a bit tomboyish, or they might be a bit, or they might not. They might be girlish, but it's. Um, Yes, she was the doctor's page in the Crusades, of course. Of course, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. So, but, yeah. but in five weeks' time, she ends up getting married to a soldier. Um, mm. She's got a contract expiring. Yeah. But, um, that's not really a character arc, is it? No, <laughs> not so much. Did they have P45s in 1965? I'm not sure if it was called that then, but yeah. But her, but her and Hartnell are just, yeah, you said right, aren't they? Absolutely, just rolling together mm. and i read i read somewhere that they got um complaints from the from William Ems, the writer because he said that that harnell and her had made more changes to his script than the script editor had because they were just improvising a lot in rehearsal and changing how everything was phrased yeah uh, because they enjoyed it so much well according to the complete history the uh those two in particular were so dissatisfied with this script and 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 maureen o'brien was demanding rewrites and that was why her contract wasn't extended was why she was written out in the next serial um, and this was the beginning of the enmity between William Hartnell and John Wiles uh, with John Wiles threatening to sack him during the the making of this story because uh, yeah because of the change he was making to the script and stuff so it was like the start of a lot of kind of uh, behind the scenes uh, kind of ructions yeah and Verity's on her way out so she's not going to be there to uh, to fight William Hartnell's corner for him anymore yeah yeah well, that's it um, whereas I think um, Peter Purvis liked Donald Tosh coming aboard as script editor, uh, he felt that he was he was kind of good for Stevens' character. It's, it, it's just nice when you hear, hear interviews with these actors now. All these years later, they're still very got a sense of um, ownership and proprietorialness about their characters, and that it really did matter to them. They weren't just turning up and saying the lines once a week. Mm. They really were. Um, they had strong opinions about who they ought to be within the show. I guess that, that is an element that makes it, it gives the program its durability that, that people really did care what they were doing definitely yes I mean you see that with so many of the people who had uh, the long term characters you know but yeah, yeah but good old Nick Courtney would, would not just come back for any old thing he, he would debate with mm. them if the right script or not yeah um, William Hartnell by this point as well as the only um, kind of person who was still working on it from the beginning. Um, you know, I think the uh, the stuff in An Adventure in Space and Time was based on kind of real things where he insisted on using the same switches on the TARDIS console that would open the door or or dematerialize and things. He saw himself as the custodian of uh, kind of uh, the continuity in the character and stuff. Yeah, and, and that attitude just, just reaps benefits in all sorts of other ways, even if you can't see which button he's pressing. Yeah. It just must make the performance more. Mm. I think that's a lot more normal now in um, in uh, any kind of TV show that people do want to have that consistency, particularly because things are watched multiple times now. Mm. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, William Hartnell was right about this one. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. This uh, yeah. is the thing, you know, Kind of, there's got to be awareness of, of anybody making Doctor Who now, you know, that people 50 years hence or more are still going to be pouring over the the stories and the, the, the scripts and the behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, it's quite a, quite a legacy, isn't it? 
Yeah, I, because we were going to be look, uh, looking into Galaxy 4, I, I splashed out one of my um, Audible.com credits on the uh, re, uh, on the uh, Audible reading of the novelization. Oh, cool. uh, and and I, I thought how bizarre that a novelization of a, of a TV story from all those years ago is now being made. Because this, this was only made three or four years ago, I think. They got Maureen mm. O'Brien in to, just to read out the Target novel. And I just can't think of any other spin-off merchandise from a series that long ago that would get made into a... First would be written up as a book twenty years later, and then thirty or forty years after that would get turned into an audio book. Wow! It's, yes, <laughs> amazing durability. That unique thing about Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, it's fairly similar. It's, it's pretty similar. There's not been any big deviations, but there are just a few. The Doctor is slightly different in the book. He's he's more. In fact, in the book, he is a quite um, disparaging of the, um, the of the Dravins uh, when they say they've got scientists he says something like oh your your female scientists haven't sorted out this which um, mm. which I, I would imagine William Hartnell would have crossed that through on his script actually because that's a, I read another thing about somewhere else about him um, cutting out some dialogue because he thought it was too sexist uh, when he was telling the girls to tidy up the TARDIS or something he refused Good to say him. it uh-huh. yeah he refused I to say heard it. that before Oh yeah, I don't remember. It's on the um, it's on the production subtitles of the Web Planet DVD, um, and it was him. And he, he, he got told off. Ironically, he got told off by Verity Lambert for changing the script to make it less sexist uh, because it was too late in the day because they'd already planned it all out. And at the last minute, he said, "Oh, hang on, I'm not doing that." And so she was saying, "You can't make changes like that now," but he did anyway. <laughs> and yes, good for him. Fantastic. Yeah. And and. Uh, we're very lucky that Galaxy 4, because it could very easily have swerved into just um, hashtag problematic territory if, if, if people had, if they had started making a thing about, oh, women in charge of a spaceship. You could you, you could just imagine, because uh, there, there was a story, a, planet, a, a trans story, wasn't there, that nearly got made. Yeah. It was about a, a matriarch society that was going to be played for laughs, and it was all going to be how awful the world would be if women were in charge. But then the um, two Rodneys did it in the 70s. Uh, precisely, and, and you can't... with worm that turned. <laughs> yes, as, as the genre goes, that pretty much summed it up once and for all. I was just, uh, just thinking yeah. when you were talking there, it, was just, it made me think of that that unmade Trout story. Um, I was trying to think of the name of it, but I think the the most striking thing, I think from what I've read about it, is that um, either either somebody's taken over. I think maybe Zoe gets taken over or kind of indoctrinated by the, the sort of female matriarchs that run this place. And Jamie um, kind of cures her by um, smacking her bottom. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, I'm sure I've read this somewhere. Um, hopefully I haven't, but, I haven't made it up or dreamt it because I don't know what that would say. <laughs> I don't know what that would say that about book. me, but I'm sure I've read that. Was there a big Dalek? <laughs> yeah. did, did you fall asleep watching The Mind Robber again? <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, no, that, that does ring a bell. I don't think that's. I don't think in this instance that's a product of your twisted imagination. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> uh, we, we've had definitely had near misses yeah. uh, for things that would need a lot of apologising for, or just uh, or just uh, sweeping under the carpet if they if they'd actually come to pass. But um, yeah, no, it's it's great that in this, um, you know, the, the fact that they're women isn't seen as some huge thing. It's just a, an interesting distinction. Yeah, and even Stephen's um, Stephen's kind of attempted flirtations don't last too long because that's uh, a little bit kind of unreconstructed for a futuristic um, astronaut, isn't it? When he first meets them, uh, <laughs> he's, uh, <laughs> he's he was on his, his own on on Mechanus for a long time, I guess, wasn't he? That's, uh, 
He was everyone. Yeah. Him and his, yes, him and his panda never gets looking for the rest of his time in the Tardis. <laughs> Poor little panda. Uh, well, I think there's a there's a Paul Mars short story, isn't there, where where that panda becomes the panda that's Iris Wildtime's companion. It's the same panda. I never knew that. I'd heard that she had a companion who was a panda. That's brilliant. Yeah. I didn't realize it was, it was actually Stephen's panda. I'm sure. <laughs> I didn't know Stephen's panda was sentient. Well, I think something happens in that short story that makes him sentient, and then he just kind of gets up and walks out the TARDIS. Um, okay. That, that. That's very Paul Mars. That's a very Paul Mars moment. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'll try and find and, that. And Jimmy shacks up with Katie Manning and goes and has adventures in time and space in a flying double-decker bus <laughs> is also very Paul Mars. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'll try and find that because I think it's um, some stuff that maybe he put on his website um, a few years ago. So I'll, uh, if I can find it, I'll put a link in the show notes. So in the, in the grand pantheon of things, where do you, where do you, what do you think about Galaxy 4? Of Doctor Who, I mean. We'll narrow that down a bit. Better than the Iliad, but not quite as good as Wonder Woman. Where do we put it? <laughs> it's... Oh, okay. um, mm. Mm, I think if it still existed as um, in its entirety, it wouldn't be one of the better-loved ones. Probably, unless there's some really good visual gags that have just been swept away by everything. But um, it's an interesting idea, and there are some good moments. Um, the doctor stopping the the doctor, Vicky stopping the doctor from destroying the ammoniac gas machine that the reels need in order to survive, and yeah. uh, things like that. And um, yeah, it's yeah. Not and, bad. and it's a good, yeah, it's just kind of all right, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. and the, doc, the doctor and Vicky do work function really well as a team, there, don't they? That's a really good example of, of them stopping each other making mistakes. It's not just that he's the all wise one and she's the, the child learning from him, there's, there's, there's proper back and forth, and they've got each other's backs. Yeah, I think it'd be sort of uh, it'd be sort of looked at in the same way, kind of the dominators or something that, that fully exists, but it. It doesn't really get talked about much, does it? When you're talking about Troughton stories, uh, people talk about a lot of others before they before they get to the Dominators, and I think I think about like that. But like you said, there's some great ideas in it. I think the the kind of the the countdown to the destruction of a planet is is it maybe not made as much of as it could be, um, you know, in terms of cranking up the tension. But that's a great idea. The um, the drive in society sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, the rules as well, like kind of um, being really different and, and having to, um, you know, breathe a totally different atmosphere because most aliens that you meet in Doctor Who just have the same atmosphere as us. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of not as good as the sum of its parts in that way. It's quite quite a sparse story, and there's a lot of wandering about, doesn't let you say, between spaceships uh, across the planet. There's nothing else going on on it. Yeah, and it's fair. I mean, this is the first Doctor Who story that features the destruction of a planet. You would think yeah. that would be a massive deal, but it, in the end, it is. They just kind of nip back into the TARDIS and take off as quick as they can. Um, and uh, but, but I guess, and also with, with it being the first story of a season, it, it, but, but that just didn't mean then what it means now. It, mm. it was just like back at, back in the office after a few weeks' holiday. It was they, they obviously didn't 
go all, all out throwing loads of money at it or anything like that for, for, a, for a big blast they were saving that for Darling Master Plan I guess yeah. mm. just, just, just getting the season off to a gentle start but in a, in a, and it's very it feels oh, I think it must have felt old fashioned by the mid 60s I mean. uh, it's got a it feels more of a sort of 1950s vibe to me um, but um, a sort of very traditional science fiction ideas but the Doctor Who hadn't really done before in, in that respect and it's getting, yeah, getting us more geared up for a season that's going to have a lot more flying around in spaceships and laser guns and things than, than the uh, than the first two years have had yeah thinking about the, the Dalek master plan coming up I was kind of um, started probably because I just looked at the um, or listened to the Dalek master plan a few weeks ago for, for a podcast I did um, kind of recognising kind of Donald Toshisms for the first time so like in this story you've got Marga going I, Marga, uh, in the same way that Mavic Chen goes, I, Mavic Chen. Uh, and that thing of calling our solar system the solar system, um, which, you know, the kind of the dialects do and all the delegates in, in the Dalek Master Plan and the Rills do here, um, which is really odd because you would, everybody would call their own solar system the solar system. <laughs> so they all call yes. our solar system the solar system, which is, uh, which is an odd kind of parochial thing, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess also back then um, there was it was merely science fiction fantasizing to imagine that there might be other planets around other suns, because um, it's really fairly recently that we've actually proved that. So, but yeah, they do they they use um, solar system and galaxy interchangeably as well. I mean, what which yeah. are galaxies one to three? Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, um, <laughs> why would you call your own Galaxy Four? You, you would uh, you'd start numbering it like number one in the one that you're in, wouldn't you? <laughs> you would, yes. That would be logical, unless they've already got through three and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> blown the ball up by accident because they're just so unpleasant. Well, the uh, Dragon yeah. Empire is so huge that it spans four galaxies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the only, it's like postcodes, that's the only explanation. Uh, I think the other thing that struck me about this one, um, in episode three, the one that exists, is is where you've got the flashback, um, when the rules are describing uh, when the both ships crashed on the planet, um, and when Marga's injured, and then when she kind of comes around, that she shoots the other Dravin, uh, the, the injured Dravin. Um, it felt really rare to get a flashback in Doctor Who, I think. That's a good point, yeah. Um, it, mm. it felt much more like modern first. TV, like it wasn't part of the um, the kind of the grammar of, of, of old Doctor Who like that. Yeah, that's a really good point. I can't think of another one happening before then. Because no. yeah. I was thinking about Doctor Who, the, uh, some of the scenes that are re- work really well is, is when something is just described um, so you know, like in State of Decay, when uh, the Fourth Doctor is describing the bullships um, battling against the great vampires, which would have been impossible to do justice to with the effects uh, in those days, um, or even stuff like the Seventh Doctor in The Curse of Fenric, when he, he talks about pulling the bones out of the desert sands and carving them into chess pieces to challenge Fenric. Um, I think there's there's some great things like that, especially when you've um, when the Doctor because. Uh, especially like Tom Baker or somebody like that has got a great voice and can you know, kind of paint these pictures just with great dialogue um, mm. so I think you, you didn't often get flashbacks because they would they would describe things in the dialogue really well yes and of course they used to record the um, episodes as live 
pretty much, didn't they? And just went sequentially from the one scene to the other a lot of the time. So uh, yeah. a flashback would have been a bit of a kink in the uh, standard production process. Yeah, no. yeah, you have to get everybody reset and get them all back to where they're supposed to be at the end of the flashback and everything, wouldn't you? Yeah. Mm. But yeah, so this shows that they are the new team. Want, I want they are wanting to uh, experiment a bit, and uh, they know they've got to come up with new new storytelling ways to take it to keep it keep it going. Yeah, because it's the first um, first one directed by his name's just gone out of my head. I'm quickly trying to look it up. We both know, but we're just waiting for you to look it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make you. Sorry, I should have done my proper research. Just uh, can't find it now. Um, we need a fact-checking Santa, like in um, Adam Buxton's podcast. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, well, originally it was going to be directed by Mervyn Pinfield, um, but he became ill. Uh, so having done some of the direction, he had to hand it over to... Uh, <laughs> wouldn't you have thought... Don't keep us in suspense, Mark. Wouldn't you have thought that would have been yes, right after that yes, fiction that... Uh, Derek Martin. It's <laughs> Derek Martinus, as you were Derek saying. Derek Martinus, yes. Exactly what I was about to say. Yeah, it's his directorial debut. <laughs> Uh, and it seemed like, yeah, he was kind of bringing in a bit more of a modern approach like that. Because, uh, yeah, because obviously and, and they all, um, uh, you know, the, the BBC roster of, of directors is one where the, the producer doesn't have all that much choice, do they? They just have to pick someone who's up on the list and, and slot a story onto them. And, yeah, he went, he went on to do um, uh, Evil of the Daleks and Spearhead from Space, mm. checks notes. Um, and uh, so he's obviously destined for, for, for really good things in Doctor Who, and this was him getting his teeth into it for the first time. And so maybe that explains why he was wanting to, he was quite happy to go ahead and do things like the flashback. Yeah. He wasn't, he wasn't just going to stick to the, uh, the production routine that had been established. Mm. Yeah, because it's quite, I mean, I say we've only got episode three, but it, it's quite, it's not statically directed like a lot of stories from that that year is it um and when they're moving through the real ship you know the, sort of the, the camera moves along with them and stuff and it seems like quite a big set that as well um whether that's just the illusion he's created or whether it was uh, just because of the movement yeah and I, I guess they had to have a nice flat floor for the chumbly so i mean the yeah. cameras could also get access quite easily uh, it's up in wind isn't it <laughs> are you going to buy it there's the question there's the big question are you going to spend 30 quid on two lovely Pink and yellow, uh, sorry, orange and yellow splatter vinyl discs. I think I am, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to go and uh, head down into town on Saturday. Well, there's a couple of other ones that I'm interested in as well. The uh, League of Gentlemen Live um, one is coming out for Record Star Day. Um, I was lucky enough to get to see that last year in Edinburgh. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. So, uh, yeah, I'd love, uh, love the, the pressing of that. Okay. Yeah, I missed that. I didn't hear about it until long after it sold out. Yeah, it was and, uh, um, not to rub it in. It was brilliant. I'd recommend it. It's on DVD <laughs> as well if uh, if you get the chance to see it. Great to see I, them reunited. I, 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 might, I might give it a look, yeah. 
And uh, you're, you're not a vinyl, you said you're not a vinyl collector, Denise. No, no, I'm not. I did have, of course, a lot of records, but um, my brother actually buys and sells vinyl on eBay. Um, so I gave him all my vinyl. So uh, now apparently people are also buying um, pre recorded VHSs and audio cassettes. So. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I gave in about five years ago and threw away most of my old VHSs because the charity shops didn't want them anymore. Yeah, but the charity mm. shops stopped accepting them a few years back, and I thought that's it. But then, of course, that's what happens, isn't it? There's a dip, and, and where everyone has a clear out, and then there's scarcity, and so the few people who find it nostalgic will uh, will, will, will be prepared to pay a bit for it. But you have to hang on to everything just in case. <laughs> well, I gave him my VHSs as well. He's actually going to watch the Doctor Who ones and show them to his kids. So we can continue the continue the tradition into the next generation. But um, yeah, fantastic! Get bibbly bobbly BBC video introduction jingle. That was lovely. Is it Mind just... you, I've got the was watching um, the Leisure Hive on Blu-ray last night, and how cool is it that Tom Baker is now doing the uh, disc announcements and the select audio navigations? press yes. enter now and all of that stuff I mean that just tells you you're in for a good night doesn't it <laughs> yes it's a really nice touch that isn't it yeah you can just imagine the smile on his face as he did it as well <laughs> is that your brother that was in Doctor Who yes that's right yeah I should definitely definitely introduce his kids to it then definitely yes. yeah yes. reminders of that tale um, well, he um, he mainly works as a sound technician in the film industry and sells a bit of vinyl on the side, but he used to do extra work as well, so he was cropping up in quite a few films and things, and he got a day's work on the Shakespeare Code, and he's playing one of the actors on the stage on the globe wearing a dress. <laughs> <laughs> Does it suit him? Um, not really, no. <laughs> It's a family thing, worked. though. He he basically looks like a male version of me, and I look lousy in dresses as well. So, sure, he did it with conviction. He did actually, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so you know, he's not a real professional actor, but he's still got to perform on on the stage at the Globe. So, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's two birds with one stone, isn't it? That's uh, being yeah. on stage at the Globe and being in Doctor Who. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. So you're enjoying the um, the Blu-ray releases, Denise? Is this the first one you picked up? Yes, yeah. I've got season 18 and 19 were both waiting for me at my mum's this weekend with a few other bits as well. And um, so, yeah, last night watched The Leisure Hive and it was glorious. I mean, it's... Almost too high resolution now, though, isn't it? Because you can see the strings pulling K9 along on Brighton Beach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, some fan, fan wreck of that explaining that actually it's him projecting a beam of light in yeah. front of him or something. <laughs> mm, and behind him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm really pleased they didn't mess with the aspect ratio and. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful thing to watch. The sound is really good. Have you watched any of the Behind the Sofa features yet? Not yet, no. I mean, um, 
I just watched the story and then I'd run out of evening, so I had to go to bed. But I've got the next three days off, so who knows what will happen. Um, I'll definitely be watching all the extras. Yeah, you can make some headway. There's a lot to get through, isn't there? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> What no. about you, Mark? Did you get a copy of the season 12 Blu-ray? I don't know whether you've ever mentioned. I, I don't like to talk about it. Uh, I didn't know. <laughs> um, I'm wouldn't want the entire episode of this podcast to pass without you mentioning the fact that you see why your absence of a season 12 Blu-ray. It's yeah. a shocking crime. I'm, I'm, we keep mentioning it, they'll send you I'm yeah, sure. That, that's my hope, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop talking about it. I feel like I'm in the, the second stage of grief now where I'm in denial and then finally I'll, I'll eventually reach acceptance. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> You've got anger to get to yet. Then. Yeah, yeah no, I've been, I've been through anger, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that the first one? Right. Yeah. <laughs> when I tried about three HMVs uh, <laughs> in a day and didn't get older one. Yeah. Uh, that's a nightmare. That's literally a fan nightmare, isn't it? yeah. Well, I hope everybody who wants to get hold of a piece of, of a, everyone who wants to get hold of a Galaxy Four is able to get hold of one. Yeah, it's a limited edition, isn't it? But not too limited. Yeah, well, last year for Record Store Day, they brought out the the City of Death and Tomb of the Cybermen um, oh. as limited editions. But then, like a week later, they were on Amazon, and I think still available on Amazon. So um, uh, I guess that wasn't as uh, as limited as as it could have been. <laughs> but I think that's probably part of the reason for that is is bringing out stories that exist in their entirety that you can buy on DVD. Mm. Yeah, it's really just a nice object to have, isn't it? That, that, oh, I suppose they're, do, they're doing Destiny of the Darks, aren't they, with a new... I don't think that's ever been released with a narration before, so I guess that's sort of... No. Yeah, I um, didn't realise it was coming out with a narration. Yeah, you could just watch it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really wish... I wish that on the Blu-rays that all of the commentaries were available. I wish you got a download code for the commentary so that you could just listen to them on your um, on your MP3 player when you're out and about. Uh, I need to find a way if there's a way of I can engineer to create them myself from my Blu-rays because uh, some, some of the new ones have got one or two commentaries on each one and uh, that's the sort of thing I'd quite happily just listen to while I was washing up or something rather than necessarily sitting down to watch the story for a second and then third time. Yeah, that would that would save a lot of time um, yeah, like you say, instead of having to sit down and watch it, you could do it on a on a commute or while you're kind of jogging about. Uh, yeah, because if you know the story well, you know you know what they're referring to. So uh, mm-hmm. why not? Yeah, that's yeah. any podcast commentaries that I listen to. I, I never watch the episode with the sound off and listen to the podcast. Like if I'm listening to the Highlanders, for example, I never watch the story. But you kind of you've got enough familiarity that you know which bit. Um, oh yes, yeah. Um, I'm the same. I think um, I think my other half would think me. A, well, he thinks I'm odd anyway. Let's be honest. But <laughs> he would think I was. You're a limited edition. You're not odd. <laughs> yeah, a, yeah, I I am a limited edition orange vinyl edition of something from the sixties, and it's very obscure. But then so is he. Blue but no. Um, <laughs> um, I think he'd think I was a bit odd. It'd be like either watch the movie or the show and listen to the thingy. Don't do both at the same time. That's mental. I think yeah. that would be his attitude. <laughs> It'd be interesting, though, actually, if anybody uh, if anybody does um, listen to uh, listen to like the commentaries that we've done, you know, on, on series ten, if they. Uh, if they watched it with the episode on in the background, 
Uh, let, let me know on Twitter if, uh, if anybody does Ooh. that. I actually, I think uh, Colin said that he does that. Um, I mean, I think if I had the luxury of watching a lot of TV on my own, and I'd probably think about it. But so, mm. you know, sort of, we're all busy, aren't we? We all have lives, and we all have. Well, I've got a garden that needs doing, and it's mm. great to be listening to a podcast while I'm doing the gardening. So yeah. uh, that's when I listen to the Highlanders. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose the advantage with the Highlanders is they they don't talk that much about the TV episode either. Um, you, you need yeah, to be watching. Easily forget. Yeah. They are <laughs> quite sometimes... easily distracted, aren't they? Bless yeah. them. Yeah. And if occasionally somebody then says, "Oh, look at that," you think, "What? <laughs> what?" <laughs> yeah, they're watching a program. I forgot. I was just listening to the chat. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, they will be back soon. So they tell me. Yes. Well, yes, that's good news. Like Brigadoon, like, yeah. <laughs> disappear in the mist, only to resurface eventually. Although you borrow them from time to time, don't you, Mark? Yes. Speaking of which, Lawrence Sutcliffe will be on the podcast next week to talk about Destiny of the Daleks to mark its release on vinyl as well. Ah, uh, cool. I will not be buying that one, I don't think, because uh, I already own the DVD and I'll be buying it on Blu-ray whenever that box set comes out. So. <laughs> you know, they really should put it on vinyl. Sharda. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, just, I just want to have more ways of experiencing Sharda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> It's time will come. Yes. I wonder what Douglas Adams would think about all of that. Mm. He probably don't, wouldn't, wouldn't remember that he'd even written it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's, it was his day job when he was trying to do something else. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm sure he. I'm sure he would remember it quite fondly indeed. Yeah. Yeah, you get the sense from the uh, from the extras on the DVD that everybody was absolutely gutted when uh, when it was never broadcast or finished. Mm. And of course, he did use it for one of the Dirk Gently novels. Yeah, that's true. The long yes. time of the soul. That was the one, wasn't it? Can't keep a good idea under wraps. Yeah, absolutely. Just because of a scenery strike, yeah. <laughs> or whatever it was, it'll, it'll find its way into the into the ether. Definitely. <laughs> so, where can we find you guys on the internet? Okay, well, I am at Cup of Tea sixty nine on Twitter, and I also have a blog. I've been trying to write some science fiction recently, and there's a short story on there if anyone wants to have a look. Um, and that's pretty much where I live. Absolutely, you should mention that your short story was brilliant. I really enjoyed it, Denise. Oh, thank you very much. Fantastic. Appreciate yeah. that. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, yeah, absolutely recommend that to anybody. It's a really good read. And Pete? And I'm I'm uh, Professor Quite a Mess, Prof underscore Quite a Mess on, on Twitter. Uh, and I mainly talk about Doctor Who there, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> it's amazing. It's such a cool name as well. <laughs> yes, it came to. It was on Halloween when you know people changed their names to spooky things for Halloween. I came up with that, and it was much better than whatever my original name was. I can't remember that now, so I stuck with it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. It's really, really memorable. So it's good. Um, and and when we we met at Vorp last year, um, it was that that weird thing of uh, everyone was introducing themselves by their Twitter names because it was the only way we all knew each other. <laughs> yeah, and the weird. And I was like, oh, I've got a sort. Of Earthshock helmet on, and like, oh, it's yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> we should totally get t shirts. 
<laughs> yeah. Yes, with, with our avatars on. <laughs> Tra- trap form t-shirts. Yes, that'd be good. That would mm. be very. Put the um, put the uh, the URL on the back and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but we can be writing it down as we walk past. <laughs> can you get QR codes on t-shirts? I don't know if the uh, resolution's <laughs> good enough. <laughs> cool. And uh, yeah, if you want to, you can find me on Twitter as at trap one underscore. Uh, as I say, Lawrence will be on the podcast next week um, to talk about Destiny of the Daleks, which is the first story he ever saw. Um, so it'll be interesting um, hearing about his recollections of that. And you can find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.